data engineering is difficult. Companies want to be able to maximize the value that they get from their large data sets, but there are so many steps required for deriving that value that most companies feel like they are always far behind the ideal state of where they could be. The cloud makes it cheap to save data. Tools like Spark and Snowflake give us usable APIs for simplifying the large-scale data processing. Workflow engines like Airflow help us visualize a complex execution path of a data pipeline. So, with all of this tooling, why is it so hard for us to make use of our data? Nick Schrock is the creator of Dagster, an open-source system for building modern data applications. Nick is also the CEO of Elemental, a company that he is building around Dagster. And before creating Dagster, Nick worked at Facebook, where he co-created GraphQL. Nick returns to the show to discuss modern data engineering and why it continues to be so difficult for engineers to be productive with their data. For anyone who is trying to understand the space of data engineering and feels intimidated and just feels completely confused by why data engineering is as difficult and seemingly unproductive as it is, this is a great episode. Nick is quite good at at simplifying the strange complexities of the data engineering ecosystem. I hope you enjoy it. And full disclosure, I am an investor in Nick's company, Elemental. Nick Schrock, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. There is a term that gets frequently used these days called data platform. And I hear it being used so many times in so many different contexts. What is a data platform? Well, that's interesting, Jeff, because I think it's a term in popular use because it's something that everyone wish exists, but doesn't exist yet. So what do people actually want? How I think about this is thinking about all the different data that enterprises have to deal with, and it is classified into a few different ones. One is data that is inputted by users and manipulated by a traditional application. The other data is data that is ingested from the outside, either from outside entities or even sensors. And then, you know, the reason why this is so difficult is that most of the data in an enterprise that has to be managed is moved around and processed and copied, meaning that you're copying data from the application into something. I think the term du jour is a data lake or a data warehouse these days, or it's ingested and copied from an external entity or taken from sensors. And then those are processed by a wide variety of tools, different computational runtimes, different storage formats. And there's no either vertically integrated solution that manages all that data that gets computed within an organization. And the vertical integration doesn't exist, nor does some sort of horizontal integration exist that ties all the systems together. So again, I think to summarize, I think the data platform in the way people want it to be does not exist yet, but everyone instinctively recognizes the need. When a company gets started, it's just a database. Many of the listeners are probably, when they think about 
applications that they've built. They just think, okay, I've got a website and I've got a database. And I remember as I was starting to do this podcast, I started to learn about the fact that bigger companies have more databases, more data platforms, more data processing systems. And I want to paint a picture for people who are less familiar for how companies get to a place where they need multiple data systems and multiple data processing techniques. What is the journey that a company takes from just having a single node database to needing all these different systems? So there's many dimensions to this. So first of all, I think that most companies today are not those single database companies, meaning that they either through the constraints of their domain or through self-inflicted technical decisions do not have a single database. So this transitions into one of my favorite topics, which is microservices. So the moment that you decide to adopt a microservices architecture, you typically now have more than one database, meaning that you cannot do an analytics query against those two databases without introducing a third system. So the moment that you introduce a microservice, which is very popular these days, you require more data management. At minimum, you need to copy that thing to, to a place, likely a data warehouse, where you can join those two data sets in a coherent way. Or you use a tool like Presto, which can kind of connect to those two databases and then provide an analytics engine over that. But regardless if it's Presto or Snowflake or something else, you need some sort of system that can stitch those things together. So that's what I'll call the self-inflicted technical reason why people need to do it. You know, let's imagine you have a single database, right? The other vector that needs that this happens is, you know, you maybe start out and you're doing analytics queries against your production database, the moment that you kind of bring down your own users based on your analysts showing up at nine in the morning and slamming your production database, you decide to change your architecture. Then you typically introduce read replicas. At some point, that doesn't scale. And then you end up replicating that data to a data warehouse or data lake where typically you're using a column store in order to achieve performance. Um, the other way this happens is what I'll say is your domain requires it, meaning that yes, you have your application, but you are also integrating your application data with data from some external source, either like you're ingesting it from a SaaS service, you're scraping data from somewhere else, you're ingesting data from a third-party vendor of another sort, or you're ingesting sensor data that is outside the scope of your app. So the moment that you have more than one data source and one additional data source beyond your application database, you generally need another system to at minimum store and likely process that data. So in today's world, I think most systems grow beyond a single database fronted by a single application, actually increasingly early in their life cycle. And I'll give you one other thing. Elasticsearch is like super common, right? Like you need to have this search centered database that is essentially often a copy of your core data, but you have to have some system for copying over your core database into the Elasticsearch database, which is not exactly the same thing as the kind of analytics 
tasks you're talking about, but it's often done within the same purview, right? It's this, this is still the data platform that we're talking about. And this furthers the confusion. Yeah, I, that's a great point, Jeff. I need to add that to my uh, fact sheet when I'm explaining this to people. But the commonality between all these different things is that data is going from one place to another. You have, maybe it starts with the core database, that data moves, it gets copied into an Elasticsearch, or it gets copied into a Spark cluster, or it gets copied into this or that, and from there it might get copied into somewhere else. And this is the framing around which you see the emergent data platform, the directed acyclic graph of data moving from one place to another. Can you shed some more light on that that perspective that you take? Yeah, it was this kind of pattern I saw as I was discovering this domain. And I was, you know, if you jump from, you know, what I worked on before was traditional applications. I like to say I was present at the creation of the full hipster stack. So I personally was one of the creators of GraphQL. I wrote the first kind of version of that, the first prototype. And then I sat next to, I didn't have anything directly to do with it, but I sat next to the people who built React. And those systems are very principled and kind of have like fairly great developer aesthetics and whatnot. And then you jump into this data engineering world and it's just very different. And the thing that I noted is that, and a lot of this comes from Chris Berg's data ops way of thinking, is that this is much more like a manufacturing process where data gets moved, transformed, and you don't have control over your ingest. So in a traditional application, if the user enters inappropriate data, you simply make their form red, and then you force them to re-enter the data so it's correct. You do not have that option in data ingest systems. Whatever the other systems give you, you have to deal with, which means this injects a ton of complexity that is not obvious into your software systems. And as a result, there's a lot of software complexity in these pipelines or data production systems or what we like to call data applications. And programming feels different. And then I noted that most of the data in the enterprise was actually derivative data produced by these processes. So you have like, and by most data, like often the raw ingest dominates in terms of raw storage, but I mean in terms of data complexity and data surface area. Most of the, if your metric was instead the number of unique columns and data sets you needed to track, it is dominated by data that is produced from other data. And, you know, the commonality between all of that stuff is every kind of data asset that is produced within an org is typically produced by a single computation running at a regular interval over a long period of time. So there's this one-to-one -one correlation between a unit of computation and the data asset it produces. And so because of that, I thought that effectively the DAG is the the DAG of functions, and it's not, there's also, I, I use the term graphs because I think, you know, there are circular dependencies like with in ML systems in particular, but that is the core abstraction that can unify all of these disparate systems. Because whether it's a Spark job or a data warehouse job, in the end, they are just functions that consume something and produce something. It's actually, there's like a missing core primitive in my view. Who are the different constituencies that are operating over this system? 
So you asked what the major constituencies in these systems are. And this leads to another thing that I noted about these data applications is that there's a wide range of constituencies. So there's data engineers, data scientists, there are analysts, there's the infrastructure engineers that support those people. And there's also kind of this missing constituency that people don't talk about today, but who are directly involved in that. And that's the actual application developers who in the end are you know, one of the key sources of data that the organization has control over. What's fascinating about this is that each of those constituencies is accustomed to using very different tooling to actually build their part of the process. But in the end, the end widget that they're producing does the same thing. Like a data scientist writes a notebook, which does some processing. You can view that as just a function, a coarse grain function. The data engineer is using, say, Spark, written in Scala. Again, they're just writing a job which consumes a file and produces a file or a data warehouse table, et cetera. And you can kind of, you know, so on and so forth. I think what everyone notes in this system is that it feels like the different constituencies in these data applications are far too siloed. They exist in totally different worlds. And as the data flow from one constituency to another, a ton of context is lost and they don't have a fundamental base of infrastructure on which they can operate in a truly unified way. And so those are kind of the major constituencies that I see in this domain. You and I first talked about what you were doing with Dagster about I think it was 18 months or two years ago, something like that. Probably a year and a half, yeah. A year and a half, something like that. And at first I didn't really understand what the perspective you were taking was. And part of the reason for that is because you were coming from a very different area than the data engineering conversations I had been having because you know most of the data engineering people that I had been talking to had either been working in research for a long time like the Spark people or they had been working on Hadoop infrastructure for a really long time and because you were coming from a different background kind of the front end middleware infrastructure layer it felt somewhat foreign but since then the way that you explain what you're working on has converged with the more traditional way that these data engineering people talk and the problems that they're confronting. And you explore this a little bit in this talk that you gave at Data Council, which was awesome. But one of the things you noted was there are things that people don't talk about in the data engineering world. And whenever people are not talking about something that everybody is experiencing, that is the most important thing in the room. What are these problems that you have observed with the the world of data engineering what are these acute problems that you think people are perhaps under focusing on i think when you come from an adjacent domain you can kind of ask have that beginner's mindset and ask why is it like this and not be satisfied with the answer of like well this is what we've always done this is what we do you know, it's like, well, let's, let's talk about that. And this also comes from the experience of Facebook of kind of having that mentality of like honoring best practices, but not being captive or hostage to them. 
So with that being said, there were a few obvious things as I started to talk to people and observe the way they work, is that the programming that they did felt, for lack of a better term, at a lower level of abstraction and with less structure than I felt was appropriate. Meaning like the way they were approaching the software didn't match the complexity and subtleties of the domain. This is kind of most directly expressed in that testing is not a norm in these systems, which is crazy. It's totally crazy, given how mission critical and how difficult these things are to build. And I believe that's mostly a software abstraction problem. And the other thing is this mantra that you hear over and over and over again, which is like, I spend 90% of my time data cleaning and 10% of my time doing my job. And if you just kind of hear that a couple times, then you start thinking, well, that's probably the most important problem to work on. And yeah, so it was just kind of the type of thing where you enter an adjacent domain with a certain amount of experience and a mentality that you developed over there. And then you kind of go in and start asking the dumb questions that are staring you in the face. And why does framing data engineering as a directed acyclic graph help alleviate data cleaning? So it's because the term data cleaning is inaccurate. The way I like to explain that or think about it is that people say like, I spend 80% of my time data cleaning and 20% of my time doing my job or 10% of my time doing my job. And so there's one of two possibilities there. One is that they have a misconception of what their job is, and maybe the 80% of the time they do, that is their actual job. The other way to frame that is that the term data cleaning is inaccurate, and it's a misnomer that means that I spend 80% of my time doing stuff that is not my job, one of which is data cleaning, but it's actually like a far more comprehensive set of issues. One is that people frequently have to roll their own infrastructure like very typically you hire a data scientist, you have some CSV files that live somewhere, you give them a Jupyter notebook and they're expected to kind of re-derive the meaning of that data from scratch, roll their own infrastructure, figure out how to productionize it, maybe with limited help from an infrastructure engineer. And they don't have a software engineering mentality that allows them to control the complexity of the software they need to build. So all of that, I believe, gets roped into the term data cleaning. So how Dagster, we hope, has impact on that is that it's a way to structure your applications, your data applications, in a way that kind of brings the best of traditional software engineering and then adapts it to this target domain and presents it in a way that aligns with the way that people think. And, you know, so I think it's kind of hard to directly tie just purely the concept of a DAG, because lots of systems have DAGs, right? Like Airflow has a DAG concept, and Luigi does, and Argo does, all, all these workflow engines do. It's kind of the other abstractions that we're building into the system, and having the notion of having a standard around a unit of computation that's accessible via the API that I think kind of actually is going to have impact in this sector. 
Let's talk through some of the terminology of Dagster. So when I'm getting started with Dagster, there are some pieces of vocabulary that I need to know. I need to know there's a term called a pipeline. There's a term called a solid. Describe some of the basic vocabulary primitives of Dagster. Yeah, so we wanted to introduce, I think the most, like, a pipeline is a DAG of these solids, a directed acyclic graph. But I think the most interesting thing to dig into is this notion of a solid, because this is the neologism in the system, meaning like the new term that doesn't exist in other systems. So other systems use the term task or operator in order to describe these things. And we felt like solid was something different. So one is that, for example, Airflow, you know, kind of a adjacent system that we have an interesting relationship with, which we can get into later. But Airflow is a notion of this operator concept, which doesn't have any notion. It doesn't self-describe what data comes into it or what data comes out to it. It's purely a unit of execution. And then once a DAG is constructed in Airflow, it by design has no parameters. They're essentially functions which take no inputs and have no outputs and are therefore structurally untestable. Solids have a bunch of unique properties that we feel makes it a different abstraction that is a higher level abstraction, meaning it self-describes. It At its core, it's a function. It's a unit of computation. So when you write a solid, it's a decorated Python function where the user can define what actually happens in that function. It can shell out to instigate a Spark job. It can operate on pandas internally. It can do whatever it wants. But what it has is it defines inputs. It defines outputs. Therefore, it is a parameterizable thing that you can execute with different parameters and therefore test it. It's designed to have this notion of context that flows through it that allows you a layer of indirection from which to isolate your business logic from your surrounding environment. It has a self-describing config system. And in the end, the way the system works is that we actually compile that graph of solids, combining it you know, with config as an input to generate a derived DAG that looks like much more like an Airflow DAG, one without parameters. It's a machine-generated artifact that is then directly executable. So we feel it's a higher level of abstraction that is distinct from its progenitors. And therefore we felt that introducing a new term was appropriate. The adoption for this kind of tool is very tricky. So I wanna understand the state in which you imagine a company adopting Dagster and the process by which they adopt it. Yeah, so I think there's kind of a few different use cases here. One is a company, let's say, that you are just getting a project off the ground and you kind of have Greenfield and you're starting from the blank page. And therefore, you're in the position to kind of think about what infrastructure you want to use from first principles. And 
you know, that's kind of one cohort of user that we're very interested in right now because they have a lot of flexibility and they aren't beholden to existing systems and whatnot. But this system also is designed to be incrementally adoptable. And that definitely stems from the experience of both GraphQL and React and also all the internal projects that we worked on at Facebook. And so the system is designed very explicitly to integrate with a ton of other systems, both existing computational runtimes like a data warehouse and Spark, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and also existing workflow engines. Because as I said before, you know, because the solid we believe is a fundamentally higher level abstraction than say an airflow operator or task graph, that we can actually compile you can actually use Dagster, the software abstraction, within the context of Airflow by effectively calling out a function that takes a set of solids as an argument and some config and then it compiles an Airflow DAG. So a user that wants to use Dagster within the context of an existing Airflow cluster can begin to experiment with it without having to change any of the existing infrastructure. So there's a few, you know, because it's a pure software abstraction and it's what I like to call a horizontal opinionated platform rather than a vertically integrated one, it's enormously flexible in terms of how you can integrate into your system. And so those are kind of like the, you know, the two modalities that I think about is greenfield adoption. I would introduce a third, which is a greenfield team that has the opportunity to build new infrastructure in the context of an existing company. So that's kind of like you spin up a new a new team with fresh blood and they kind of have carte blanche to operate independently. And then there's people who are maintaining existing infrastructure. And so there's kind of a, a spectrum there. Hmm. Yeah, that third team seems really relevant because I think about two canonical shows that, that stand out when I think about data platform are one that I did with Uber and one that I did with Lyft. Just because these companies have so much data coming in and there's so much stuff they could build on top of it. So they really wanted to build this rich... I mean, I think these are companies that actually do have data platforms. Like This, yes. they, this fulfills the requirements of the data platform. It does not fulfill maybe the ideal UX requirements. Maybe that's what you're doing. But I can totally imagine some new team saying, look, we're going to build... Lyft Eats, right? And we need data from the Lyft driver platform because we need to figure out who are going to be the best drivers for the Lyft Eats platform because we want to start doing food delivery. You can totally imagine a new data engineering and data science team standing up within Lyft and saying, we want to reimagine the kinds of data operations that we're going to need out of this data platform. And we're going to start from scratch with Dagster. Do you think that's the third category that you're talking about? The greenfield embedded greenfield within, embedded within within a large company totally. that has a data platform. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. So those companies, they have what I'll call data platforms, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously they have a ton of incredibly talented people working on this, and they perform you know, extraordinary feats of infrastructure engineering. But if you talk to people who work at Lyft or especially Uber or any of these companies, 
the internal data platform is incredibly fractured. And, you know, there are lots of good tools within every vertical. I find the tools that span every vertical to be relatively limited, even in those mature orgs. But putting that point aside, yeah, I think that's exactly the type of use case that is totally amenable to that greenfield within existing org project. So, you know, and that it works because Dagster is totally agnostic to computational runtime, like I said. So we consider things like Spark or a Jupyter Notebook or Data Warehouse job as kind of the body of a solid, which from the standpoint of the system is totally black box. And then, you know, therefore you can reuse existing code and existing systems that are built on those technologies. But you also have the opportunity to kind of introduce a new layer that's interesting where you don't have the requirement of integrating with a bunch of existing infrastructure on a different dimension. So it kind of simplifies the problem in a way. And that's, I think, the... And then those teams typically have typically are empowered to make their own technology choices, given the culture of those engineering organizations. So as I understand, the developer experience for using Dagster is I go into my code and I find these operations that are doing what is commonly called data cleaning today, but might be any kind of data transformation. And you decorate it with metadata that says this is a solid and after decorating it as a solid the developer now has the experience of being able to see that solid in a visual interface that you've created called Dagit. so there is essentially a ui experience a almost like an ide for defining your data workflows can you just talk a little bit more about the developer experience when I am using Dagster and I'm I want to create some kind of data application on top of my data infrastructure? What am I doing? Yeah, so well, I think you got it right for phase 1, right? Which is taking existing computations doing very few changes to them annotating them with some metadata that allows you to express what those computations are actually doing. So we have a type system, we have a metadata system. As you noted, those can be visually rendered within Dagit and then also monitored. I think where the system starts to deliver more value is where you actually start to mold your computations to be in line with the Daxter APIs. So you kind of like make your existing code a little more so-called Daxter native. And once you do that, it unlocks a lot of potential. So one of the things is that we design the system to be very pluggable, meaning that when you have a workflow system, you typically have to track or we track, you know, what runs have been running. So there's kind of like a runs database somewhere. And also we also store intermediates that flow between the solids in order to enable 
incremental computation and being able to re-execute tasks without re-executing an entire DAG and other features as well. And because we designed it to be very pluggable, that means we can run it in a mode where you don't depend on any externalized infrastructure to run the pipeline. And that makes it so it's far more testable. You can run it in an isolated environment, either on your laptop or in a CICD pipeline or in your production environment without changing your business logic. And this is critical for having layers of testing. If you talk, for example, to someone who's running an Airflow cluster, the notion of running unit tests is very, very difficult. The notion of running Airflow in a local way where you can execute, say, subsets of the DAG, you cannot parameterize it. So how could you run it on a test data set instead of the production data set? It's actually quite difficult. People can do it because software is infinitely flexible, but most existing workflow engines, testability is not like a pit of success, right? You have to like fight the system in order to achieve that objective. Whereas we really try to make it so that if you use the system in the way that we try to guide the user, you kind of get testability and a local development experience all for free. So our kind of IDE environment, I'm actually about to press publish on a Medium article today that announces our latest version of Dagster 060 that we've codenamed Impossible Princess. And that will also, that turns Dagit, you can use it both as a local development environment as well as a production monitoring tool. And it's essentially the same code. And the reason that enables that is this kind of like pluggable API driven system. So you get testability because our core infrastructure is pluggable. If you kind of buy into what we call using resources and using this context abstraction we have to isolate your business logic environment or the environment that you need rather than the environment that we provide. Because a lot of the environmental concerns when people write these data pipelines are specific to their domain or context. Then you can start thinking about isolating your specific infrastructure from your business logic code. So we try to enable these abstractions in order to make it so that you can really, you know, move more of your testing farther up kind of the value chain, meaning that more of your testing can occur at unit testing time. More of your testing can occur at integration time. And then a smaller subset of that testing has to happen in your production environment. So I think that's a big value here. In general, it also structures your code better in a way that's more self-describing. So a lot of our users, it's difficult for them to articulate, but they've been able to reuse code that other builders, I'll use more generically within the system, have written because you kind of are guided to build these solids, which are coarse grain units of computation, which are self-describing, which are more straightforward to reuse in other contexts. So I think that's another advantage of the system. And yeah, I'll start out with those two. But let's talk about Airflow. Because Airflow is a very popular tool that is used to define DAGs, commonly used for data engineering. I know you've talked to, to Maxime a fair amount about data engineering. 
Max Simi, the creator of Airflow. What problems did Airflow solve when it came out? And what was the white space that remained unsolved after Airflow came out? So the core problem that Airflow solved was being able to express a dependency graph between tasks. So prior to Airflow or similar workflow engines, the people were just like running unrelated cron jobs (laughs) and not expressing their dependency, just dependencies between those systems. And, you know, if one, you know, you can imagine how this goes wrong. You have one task that runs at midnight every day, and then you know that another task depends on it. And the best you can do is run that every day at 4 a.m. If the task takes longer than four hours, everything gets screwed up. If that previous task fails and you don't restart it in time. And by the way, where are these things tracked? Like an Excel spreadsheet or something? I mean, like, God knows. Maybe if you're lucky. So that was kind of the previous state of a lot of these systems. I think the other thing that happened is that systems that did, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bucket Luigi in with Airflow as well. I think that they were trying to solve similar problems. I think, you know, you, we can debate why kind of Airflow became dominant versus Luigi, but either system could have like won, but they sure. were both attempting to do the same thing. So, I mean, it allowed you to express dependencies. I think it allowed users in a fairly low <clears throat> barrier of entry to express their DAGs in terms of code. Data dependency, saying... No, no, you can't do data dependencies in, in Airflow. It's purely all you can define is the order of execution. Well, but that's what I mean. So, uh, sorry, maybe I, I used the terminology wrong. I shouldn't but have interrupted, I apologize. No, no, sorry. <laughs> I, I interrupted you. <laughs> but you're, you say, for example, I need this data cleaned and refreshed before I operate over it with the, like, page rank job. Exactly. Like, I need this to finish. And if a server goes down two or three times and you need to restart the job two or three times, it's really important that the page rank operation, the actual kind of transformation that you're going to be building a system around, takes into account the extra time that the previous operation is going to take. That is one of the core problems that Airflow solved, is that dependency. That's right. Okay, so... And also, my sense is it gave people a place to look, to actually get a high-level bird's-eye view for what the heck is going on here. Yes. What didn't it solve? So, what I think has happened is generally the complexity of these data applications has outstripped the ability for Airflow to meaningfully model them. So, if you look at a big company, if you go into, say, a Stripe or a Thumbtack or a Lyft or whomever... The DAGs are often hundreds or thousands of nodes, at which point it's complicated enough that execution order is not sufficient in order to describe what's happening and have it be understandable by a human. There's also really practical concerns, like the UIs no longer render. There is a unit of composition within Airflow, so you can kind of subdivide your DAG into sub-DAGs. It's literally called sub-DAGs. But because of the way it's implemented in Airflow, if you talk to most Airflow shops, they actually disallow. It features, you know, talk to a kind of sophisticated Airflow shop, they typically blacklist or disallow 
subdags, sensors, and these other features because they're not reliable enough. So, you know, super high level, what I would describe is that airflow is about how something executes. It doesn't describe what it's doing beyond simply execution dependencies and a label on a task. There's no notion of data flow. There's no notion of you know, self-describing configuration. You therefore can't readily test it without building a bunch of custom stuff. And typically most airflow shops build a relatively sophisticated amount of custom software abstractions above it in order to model that. So I think airflow solved the dependency problem, did it in a way that was code driven. Therefore it was open source. It allowed you therefore to integrate with a wide variety of tools rather than having to bet on a single vertically integrated ETL system like Informatica or similar. So it solved those problems. But I believe that in order to correctly model the more complicated data applications that exist today, you just need more complexity. Airflow is also mostly specialized for data engineering workflows rather than data science workflows. So data science workflows, you typically, you really need to parameterize things because you need to say run experiments, right? You need to like launch 50 versions of a job in order to do say hyperparameter optimization or to figure out what's the best way to do your model more generally. If you model your DAGs in Airflow without having a higher level abstraction on top of it, that's actually impossible to do because you can't take an existing task in Airflow and launch them ad hoc. You cannot parameterize them differently. Again, without, you know, you can always kind of build these custom systems that work around the abstraction, but doesn't guide you to do so. So, you know, I think it left a lot of stuff on the table there in terms of things that you need to express. You used the term self-describing configuration. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So meaning that typically these data pipelines are in the end extraordinarily complicated functions. They generally take in, you know, if you go to a typical shop that has data engineers and data scientists, they often have these like massive piles of undocumented JSON or YAML that parameterize or configure these computations. Oh, good Lord. And those... People actually edit these files. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. They're often kind of write once and then use, but... Our view is that if you build more sophisticated software that allows you to verify the configuration is correct before you execute, that gives you type aheads, gives you built-in descriptions. One, the existing configuration you have is much easier to manage, but then you're not afraid to make these computations more flexible, therefore more reusable in more contexts and more testable. So. In my view, a lot of the reasons why a lot of these systems end up not having reusable chunks of code that aren't testable is because the configuration is very complex, or that's one of the reasons. So we believe that that's a fundamental capability. So really concretely, right, what this ends up looking like is that if you open up our Daggett tool and you 
are looking at a pipeline and then you want to execute it and figure out what's going on, you have this execution console where you start typing into it and then like things magically pop up and it's a type ahead and there's embedded descriptions and all this. It's kind of this like magical experience rather than just like writing some undocumented JSON. And then God forbid you hand over that undocumented JSON to another developer to try to reuse. It's very difficult where by having this kind of common configuration system, it's much easier for another builder to reuse a computation written by someone else. You're describing a much richer development environment than people write their data applications in today. And this is centered around Dagit, which is this interactive development environment for your data that does take into account what you're annotating in your code. Can you just focus on Dagit and explain what this visual IDE-like experience is for, I guess, a data engineer? That's the main person who would be using Dagit, right? Data engineer, we we believe it's a generalized tool that will be used by data engineers, data scientists who, and I think even- Or I guess even engineers, the person who's setting up the Elasticsearch cluster. Yeah, anyone who's built, anyone who's participating in building one of these data applications will use it as an authoring tool. And then again, after I press publish today on this Medium article, we hope that more and more people will use it as an operational tool as well. And therefore, you have this common kind of substrate where both ops people and data application builders will kind of be using a common tool set and a common a common API to understand what's going on in these systems. Describe the parallels between the problems of the data platform experience today as they are largely experienced in, well, by any kind of developer. Describe the parallels between that and the problems that we had with web development 10 years ago. Ah, this is one of my favorite subjects. So as I was exploring this data engineering, data application space, again, as I mentioned previously in the interview, kept on hearing this 80-20 thing where people felt that they were effectively wasting the vast majority, 89% of their time. And I was searching for, in my mind, a historical analogy to think about what was another time and place where people felt like they were wasting all of their time on incidental complexity rather than the essential complexity of the task that they were trying to perform. And the analogy was actually staring me in the face. It was exactly what I had been working on for a lot of my career. And that's this application development. So rewind back to 2010 and 2009. And if you were in screaming distance of a front-end engineer, you would hear them raging about IE6 and IE7 and browser incompatibilities. And they would say, I spend 10, 20% of my time building my app and like 80, all my time fighting the browser. And you you hear stuff like that. And that didn't just mean that people were wasting their time. It meant that other engineers in other domains didn't want to engage with that. They would kind of like hop in to a web browser and make some like toast pop up or something fly around the screen and then get the hell out of there and run away as fast as they could. 
And then if you kind of fast forward to today, the world is transformed. So in 2019, you have a very active front-end community that's, to put it lightly, very passionate, especially on Twitter. And no one says that they waste all their time fighting the browser. That's not a phrase you hear anymore. People complain about so-called JavaScript fatigue. So that's basically like there's too many tools and they're hard to integrate. But I think the ecosystem's working on that. But it's more of this general spiritual feeling that one, this is like a real engineering discipline that respects itself. People are using abstractions like Angular, Vue, but React is really dominant that respect the problem. And, you know, just like if you sit down to write a web app today and you make and you fully bet on these abstractions using React, using GraphQL, it's magical. It's totally magical. It's a joy to work in. And there's this feeling that the ecosystem really is making progress in lockstep and there's real, you know, the world is getting better. And what was interesting is what happened in those interim is, yes, the browsers did get better. That's undeniably true. You know, Chrome switching to continuously shipping stuff, for example, was a huge leap forward. But what I would argue is that the important thing that happened is that the software abstractions got better. Namely, that instead of coding against the DOM, which was good, kind of betrays it in the name. It was the document object model. It was not an application platform. You needed a fundamentally new abstraction to build or a set of abstractions to build front-end applications. So it's really a software abstraction problem at its core. And once you got the software abstractions mostly right, the entire ecosystem can make progress and it could change like the qualitative aspect of this. So I really view the state of data engineering, data science, and generally the building of these data applications, which by the way, for you know, this is kind of another new term we like that, you know, think of it as like ETL pipelines or ML processes or things of that nature. Data applications. Data applications, right. You know, it feels like front end in, yes. in 2010. Yes. Just where there's this general sense that everyone feels like there's fighting this incidental complexity all the time. There's not an ecosystem really where people are building on top of themselves. And like, there's a ton of replicated infrastructure and work across these ecosystems systematically. And I think it's fundamentally a software abstraction problem. Yes. And just to validate that a little bit further, my younger brother, who I think you met at the, <laughs> at the Open Core Summit. I did. Uh, he's the prototypical hipster developer, right? <laughs> like, you know, he... First of all, like he has had no problem being very productive with GraphQL and React. But now he's he's maturing a little bit. He's getting into data infrastructure. He's very curious. He's data curious. And, and <laughs> that's uh, an amazing phrase. Congratulations. But it, no, but being data curious, it's a tough time to be data curious because if you're a solo developer in a coffee shop like him and many other hipster developers, you don't know where to begin. You would love to get involved with machine learning and data science and big data. And we can talk about the problems of like access to data sets. That's certainly an issue as well. But you cannot really be a solo hacker. Like think about indie hacker. Like I'm obsessed with indie hacker businesses. I think they're really interesting. These one to two person companies that manage to build like 
two to ten million dollar businesses with lots of customers they are way overstretched but they've got a very successful SaaS business and they're just busy with their operational SaaS business if they even wanted to get involved with the data platform they would have no idea where to begin right etl jobs just like misery they would not even touch it it's exactly the same thing that you're saying and there is this huge untapped potential for data applications that is not realized yet. And that's what I think is pretty interesting about what you're doing. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. And one thing I'll point out is if someone looks at Dagster today, they might say, okay, I hear what you're saying and that vision sounds great. How on earth does what I see now as the open source artifact enable that? And I think that feedback is right. This is the kernel of something that we're going to build. And just to harken back to the React analogy, you know, in the early days when Jordan was kind of, Jordan Walk was starting to work on React and then Pete and Tom, you know, anyway, I won't drop names, but the early Facebook developers, the early Facebook developers who were using on it, it kind of looked like a, you know, it was like a clever abstraction, this whole notion of a virtual DOM and then the really controversial thing of JSX, which was integrating markup into your business logic, which is a whole different subject. But it was very difficult to see in 2010 how that would become the kernel of the thing which would really unleash this entire ecosystem. So I just wanna be clear that I think this abstraction has a lot of promise, but we're still in early days and we have a lot of work to realize this vision that we're working on. All right, well, we're nearing the end of our time. There was a lot of engineering stuff we didn't exactly cover that I think people could, They, I would really encourage people to check out your data council talk. I know you're a little bit unsure about it, but I thought it was awesome. <laughs> I thought it was really good, quite entertaining. Just to wrap up, Oh, we also, we didn't even talk about Jupyter Notebooks. Oh. Uh, but that's another thing people can check out. Well, I got time. We can talk about it. Okay, sure. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Jupyter Notebooks a little bit, then we'll talk a little bit about the business. Why are Jupyter Notebooks relevant? So whether you like Jupyter Notebooks or not, the reason why they're well relevant is they are the way that data scientists do their work. So there must be something interesting going on there. And... That's why they're interesting. And, you know, I think I went through, you know, I'm like a traditional grumpy, well, I'm not that grumpy, but I'm a traditional engineer. And so when I saw Jupyter Notebooks, I was kind of both amazed and appalled by them. You know, having this inline visualization in line with code was pretty amazing. But it's kind of a crazy programming model. It's very difficult to create reliable computations in Jupyter Notebooks because when you author them, they're very tied to their external environment. They allow for out-of-order execution. They don't constrain you that much. So, you know, typically if you find a notebook in, let's say you open a project that you don't know about and there's like a folder of notebooks, it's likely to be this sort of black hole of code that's extremely tied to a data scientist environment. It would be very difficult to reuse or even figure out what's going on unless they've been like incredibly thoughtful and deliberate about doing that. So Jupyter Notebooks are relevant though, because this is where data scientists do their work. But then what happens is that they have to then translate that work 
into a meaningful software artifact that can be productionized. If you want to say, plug that into a machine learning system, typically that means, or often that means that you effectively hand the notebook to a data engineer who's then responsible for productionizing it. That's actually a fairly pernicious relationship between two personas in an organization because the data scientists don't know how to productionize it. They don't understand what's happening in production. The data engineers don't actually really understand what the models are doing. And then you have this like, who's responsible for what? And it's just kind of, it's kind of how they're similar dynamic to how there used to be dedicated developers and then dedicated test engineers. And you would like throw the software over to the test engineers and it causes kind of like a high latency feedback loop between the two of them. Most large high functioning software organizations have ditched that structure, but it's replicated in a slightly different way between data scientists and data engineers. And I believe a lot of it is because of notebooks. Now, notebooks are amazing because they enable, especially in Python, to have code have a dramatically wider dynamic range, meaning that you can take someone who isn't necessarily a professional software developer, or even as maybe all they can do is they figured out how to do a lot of damage in Excel. You know, Excel is programming if you're building a financial model, and it's actually probably the most broadly used functional reactive programming platform ever created, or they you know, have they been able to figure out or learn SQL, that persona of engineer you can, or builder, I like to call, because they're not all engineers, you can pop them in a Jupyter notebook and teach them enough to do very interesting things. And they, they're incentivized to learn because they get this immediate feedback, they can graph stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you compare that to like your intro programming project at a college or something, like a Jupyter notebook is way more fun. So it's a really interesting problem space. And I think there's a project out of Netflix called Papermill, which I think is incredibly promising, which effectively allows a notebook, you can parameterize one of the cells and then turn it into a coarse grain function. There are other platforms that do this. Databricks has hosted notebooks, which have a similar capability, but Papermill is far more flexible and an open source project. And when I saw this, I was ecstatic. I thought that blog post that introduced Papermill was incredibly interesting. And I immediately built a prototype of integration that naturally I call Dagster Mill that effectively allows you to wrap paper mill in a solid. And so now this, you know, now the, the notebook becomes this reusable unit of computation that self-describes its config, describes what its inputs and outputs are. And now this is actually a thing which you can use to productionize. So you can go, you know, we can go to authoring a notebook to easily parameterizing it in a pretty simple way to then running it in production in a very smooth fashion, which I think is incredibly compelling. I've been slightly surprised that Papermill hasn't gotten more traction given how stunningly effective it's been at Netflix. And it's interesting to think about why. But, you know, our goal is to, you know, be partners with the Papermill team to really, you know, hopefully make paper mill notebooks far easier to productionize by integrating with the Daxter system. So that was a very long-winded answer about Jupyter notebooks. But, you know, it's it obviously, just to go back to the initial point, they obviously are important because they're used by, they're the de facto tool for data scientists and they fill an obvious need despite their oddities and flaws. If somebody wants to get started with Daxter today, 
who can use it today? Because I know like the project is much more mature than it was, you know, a year ago. It's still not at your total apex goal. Who should use it today? So I think if you're an engineering oriented data scientist or one of those data engineers that has an instinct that there's kind of there's got to be a better way possible and I care about developer ergonomics, I think those are you are a great candidate for you know this is all this has been open source from the beginning. Like my first line of code was on public GitHub and it's been as the team has grown and as we've worked on it, you know, nearly all the code is open source. Actually, I mean, 100% of the DAX code is open source. So, you know, and we publish, you know, we're published on PyPy. So you can just go to your console and type pip install dagster and pip install dagit and you're off to the races. But, you know, I still think we're, you know, relatively early days, which means that I think you need to be a relatively, you know, advanced engineer that is willing to roll with the punches with a, you know, emerging abstraction. And also, you know, we're really excited about our people who like to build their own tooling to integrate with existing, with these new abstractions and really kind of partner with us to move the system forward. So those are the type of people, I think, who will be adopters. Like, if you want a completely out-of-the-box vertically integrated thing that is hyper mature, you know, and you kind of want to abstract away code in a way with like drag and drop tools and stuff and completely author stuff without opening up VS Code or Vim or whatever, then it's probably not for you right now. We'll do another show at 1.0. <laughs> You're building a business around this, Elemental. You worked at Facebook for several years. How does building a startup compare to working at Facebook? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. And, you know, working within an organization is very different than working outside the organization, an organization you're partnering with. Meaning at Facebook, I was very accustomed to having 100% visibility into how everyone in the company was using systems that I had you know, participated in building. So I remember... You know, very late in the company, one of my closest collaborators, Ola, Ola Okolola, he was still had a folder, which he read every email, which had the summary at minimum of every single piece of code written in our product code base. So our team was very attuned to what everyone was doing, and we could respond proactively to that. Now, the relationship is far different when you're dealing with external folks who are just hopping onto a Slack and submitting bug reports or asking questions. And naturally, we always kind of want to be like, hey, like, this is great. We're super happy you're using the system. Like, what we really want is full context, like show us all the ways you're using the system so we can really understand what's going on. And adjusting to a lower information environment has been a challenge for us. So I think we've had to switch to a mode with more active, you know, I, I call it customer success, but the open, I don't know what the non-corporate open source version of that sounds like called developer success. You know, 
really kind of being proactive and reaching out to those folks and really kind of being like, no, we are here for you. We want you to be a needy user. We want full context. And I don't think a lot of people are accustomed to working that way in an open source context. So I think that's in terms of the pure open source development, that has been the biggest challenge because you know, with the two examples, which I always go back to, which is React and GraphQL, GraphQL is a very mature system conceptually by the time we open sourced it. You know, we had really, we had used it for a few years. We had really done a rethink and a redesign. And then we were able to just kind of like put out a document. And because it was relatively intellectually coherent, people were able to build on it with very little interaction, which looking back on it is actually kind of remarkable. But we're much more in the mode of developing this out in the open. And we have to change system a little bit as we go along the way. We're very committed to backwards compatibility. If you start using the system, we're not going to break you all the time. But, you know, we're evolving more out in the open. So I think that's been a big adjustment. Anything else you want to add, Nick? I'm, if you're interested in talking about it, we can, maybe the relationship between business model and open source. Totally. Is is like interesting. I know you're interested in that subject. Oh, well, of course I am. Yeah. Give me your thoughts. So I think there's... And by the way, I guess to put this in context, are, like, are you talking about this just fundamentally the fact that your code is open source and you're trying to build a business around it? Or are you talking about this in the context of other companies that have done like kind of this licensing? So licensing is the particular issue which is top of mind right now uh-huh. because... You know, Confluent, Cockroach, Elastic, Mongo, have all, Redis, and probably other ones as well, have all been beginning to, they are trying to layer their software between open source and proprietary stack by having a, what I'll call a pseudo proprietary license over at least a portion of their software effectively is defense mechanism against public cloud providers, especially AWS. And I've been thinking about this a lot and about, because one of the advantages, you know, there's a disadvantage to developing an open source project kind of outside the context of a company because of the issues I was talking about before. I think maturing it is more difficult if you're not totally embedded within a big company. However, What you can do is sit back and systematically think about how to thoughtfully construct the company to have a sustainable business built over it. So that's been a very interesting exercise to do. Now, the model that I actually look to, and this might sound counterintuitive, but I think one of the most successful open core companies that often isn't classified as an open core company is GitHub. So the core technology that GitHub is structured around is Git. And what they were able to do is they were able to leverage the adoption of Git to build a hosted product that's proprietary that everyone accepts as like, this makes sense as a proprietary product. It has network effects and identity layer, you know. And then in addition to that, they, because they made Git easier to use, there was this reflexive relationship between the two entities, meaning that as GitHub got more popular, Git got more popular, Git became the inevitable technology and therefore drove the adoption of GitHub. And this is despite the fact that for a long time, GitHub's product development was very kind of like slow in my opinion, and Git has like an extraordinarily hostile user interface. 
in terms of its command line interface. Like it is so unnecessarily intimidating, especially for people who aren't classical computer scientists. You know, you like explain to someone who's just like figuring out Git, like, oh, it's just all hashes. It's obvious. It's like, no, that's not obvious at all. You know, so that's the way I think about this. The nice thing about that is that I think that there are far less cases where you're scared of another organization driving the underlying technology. So I always think about this as maximizing the number of win-win relationships in the ecosystem. And what our goal will eventually to be, have Elemental.Cloud or whatever we call it, be a product where your developers, your builders have been using Dagster as a productivity tool to make themselves more productive and efficient, but we can leverage the adoption of it to build a product that is valuable to enterprises where if you're at an organization with bet on Dagster, it is just natural for you to adopt Elemental.Cloud so that there's a place where you can log into and understand kind of the health and the status and do that data management platform. And it makes sense to have that be hosted and have workflows between different tools managed by a product. So that's the shape of the business that I want to form. And what's nice about that is that, and I totally respect all the companies that are doing it, and I understand why they're doing the proprietary licensing stuff, but you don't have to deal with those shenanigans, so to speak. I think so too. Right? With GitHub and Git, there's like a clear separation of church and state, so to speak. We're like the open, obviously, and partially it's because GitHub is not responsible for Git, right? That's the one part of the analogy that kind of doesn't work as well. But there's no question that Git is open source and will always be open source. And there's no question that GitHub is a proprietary product. And everyone's fine with that. And it's very clear to communicate what's going on. So what we're going to be able to do is communicate very clearly that Dagster in its current form and whatever form, like the moment we, everything in that GitHub repo will be, I mean, I'm never going to say never, but the plan is that that will be open source forever and always. And then that we will explicitly build a closed source product that leverages the adoption of that. That will be a hosted proprietary product that will deliver value to enterprises on dimensions that developers don't want to deal with. And so that is kind of the medium term vision for the company. Wonderful. Well, I'm definitely a big fan of what you're doing. I encourage people to either check it out Try it for yourself or apply to work at Elemental, perhaps. <laughs> I know you're hiring. We are hiring. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity.